Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts, knowing that you are a gracious and merciful God who has shown your great mercy and grace in sending your only begotten Son into this world to save sinners from their sin. And we thank you, Father, that we who were once sinners set apart from you have been drawn to you, and now we have a desire to worship you. We thank you, Father, that you have put your Spirit in us, that your Spirit is able to guide us and lead us into truth. And we pray, Father, that your Spirit may come this day and work in our midst to bring honor and glory to your name, that he may teach us truth so that we might rightly grasp it and rightly live it out in our lives. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word, and we pray, Father, that our eyes would be open to your truth and our ears unstopped to hear your truth. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives to make us more Christ-like. We thank you, Father, for word which teaches us who you are and teaches us the greatness of redemption and the greatness of our Redeemer. And as we meditate upon our Redeemer this day, Father, we pray that he would be high and lifted up and draw all men unto himself. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs. We pray especially for those who would be sick, that your healing hand would be upon their bodies and that you would be pleased to restore them quickly so that they may join us again very soon. Pray for those, Father, who would be away traveling. Give them safety in their travel. Bless them as they worship elsewhere, and we pray that they would soon return. We pray also for those who would not be here due to lack of concern for their own needs, spiritual needs, and we pray, Father, that there would be conviction of sin and that they would come back and be a part of this fellowship. Pray that all that would be said and done would be honoring and pleasing in thy sight. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. As you know, we ended the Lord's Prayer last Sunday, so I thought it'd be a good time to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount and spend some time looking at the advent of Christ, and that's what we will begin doing today, and we'll be also having some other men preach during these next few Sundays during the month of December, so we look forward to them also preaching on the advent of Christ. But today we want to look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and we will read verses 6 and 7. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll begin reading with verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from the time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord host will perform this. Have you ever wondered how many prophecies were given and fulfilled about the coming of the Messiah? I discovered that there are over 350 such prophecies that speak of the Messiah in the Old Testament. 
And at least 12 of those are concerning the birth of the Messiah. Now, if a husband is, or a husband's wife is expecting, usually he says it's going to be a boy. Now, that's just natural instincts for us men. And he has a 50% chance of being right unless there's been a sonogram done. And it's pretty definite then. But we know that if he says it's a boy and it becomes a boy, we know that that's not prophecy, that's just 50% or from a sonogram. Now, before our grandchildren were born, each of them, the family always would seek to guess the sex and the weight and the height or the length and the time of birth. Now, no one has ever gotten all of those exactly right. It's kind of like horseshoes. We get a little close, but we never hit the ringer. Uh, we'll pretty soon have another opportunity to make those guess. I hope it doesn't happen today. But we'll see how that turns out as well. But yet when Christ was prophesied about his birth, it was not a guessing game. It was prophecy that came true. Did you know that there are no prophecies concerning the birth of Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Mr. Joseph Smith or any other religious character or cult leader? None of their births were prophesied. Only the birth of Jesus Christ has been foretold here by Isaiah. And it's the first prophecy concerning the birth of Christ. Now, we go all the way back, of course, to uh, Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, verses 15, to find out the very first prophecy. But this one's the first prophecy of his birth. But we had the first prophecy, of course, in Genesis three fifteen, when it says, I will put iniquity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, Adam and Eve were given this message and they began to hope for the Messiah. Of course, the Messiah did not come in their lifetime. We see others prophesied concerning the Messiah. Job and Moses both prophesied and spoke of him coming. But we see that Isaiah firmly gives us great prophecies concerning the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. And it was Isaiah who gives us these specific prophecies in this one that we're looking at this morning, which took place 700 years before the birth of Jesus. When the Lord asked him, whom shall I send after he had confronted the Lord? It tells us there in Isaiah chapter 6 that the Lord he saw high and lifted up on his throne and his train filled the temple. And we saw that Isaiah began to come apart at the seams. And he said, woe is me for I am undone because he saw his sinfulness because he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And when he saw Christ, he could see how sinful he is. And when the Lord asked him, who shall I send? He willingly said, here am I, send me. He was so lowly and he was so purified with the vision that he saw that he cheerfully cried out in surrender 
to the Lord. Now, God tells Isaiah that his ministry concerning the Jews would be altogether fruitless. Now, that's not very encouraging for a preacher, that your ministry is going to be fruitless, but yet that's what God told Isaiah, that they would not listen to his testimony, that his ministry would be a ministry preached in darkness, and men would harden their hearts against the truth that he was going to preach. They would shut their eyes, and therefore they would not understand, and they would not receive the truth. The land would become utterly desolate, and they would be carried off into captivity because of their disobedience, and there would be a great forsaking in the land. Now, this is the historical events that took place during Isaiah's day. But there was a deeper and more profound truth that was to be heeded, and that was that there would be a gleam of the light. The light would shine forth, that God's grace would penetrate the darkness and shine forth. And this is why Isaiah was called to give this message. Some call Isaiah uh, the gospel of Isaiah, and some call Isaiah the evangelical prophet, for he gives more prophecies concerning the Messiah than any other prophet. Matter of fact, the apostle John gives us the message there in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. He tells us the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which was spoken. The Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn so that they should be healed. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Of course, when he saw his glory, speaking of there in the temple that is spoken of in chapter 6. So that's when he heard from the Lord that they would not believe, they would harden their heart and that the land would be desolate. Now, we see that the book of Isaiah is divided into three sections, which most scholars teach us. And we see that in the earlier section, it speaks of the advent of Christ, His first coming, and what would transpire in His first coming. And in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, we have His suffering, called the suffering servant. If you want to divide it up, usually it's chapter 1 through 39, and then chapters 4, 40 through 54, and then 55 through 66. Now, the Hebrew word for Messiah is, matter of fact, Messiah. Uh, So everybody can say they at least know a Hebrew word, which actually means anointed. Now, of course, in the Greek, it's translated Christ, the anointed one. Now, children, who were usually anointed? What men were usually anointed in the Old Testament? Well, it's prophets and kings, right? We see that throughout the Old Testament, there were times when a prophet would be anointed or a king would be anointed. Now, in your catechism... Children, question number 57 asks, what does Christ do for His people? Have you got that far? Do you know the answers to that one? What does Christ do for His people? 
He does the work of what? Prophet, priest, and king. Now, of course, Isaiah speaks of that. And, of course, he uses the term Messiah, and it's closely linked to the idea of kingship, of prophet. And Isaiah teaches this. This morning we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's by Wesley, Charles Wesley. And in that first verse, he speaks of his kingship. And he says, The glory of the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now we see there that he has a purpose, and it says as the newborn king. Now what is a king? A king is also a deliverer. So we know that Christ came to deliver, deliver his people from their sins. In the second verse, it speaks of his birth. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead sees, held the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Christ our Emmanuel. So you see that this particular hymn that we sang first this morning is full of truth about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. It refers to many prophecies. One of those prophecies is found a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give a sign. And what is that sign? Well, the sign is that a virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will be called him Emmanuel. And Wesley's hymn speaks of that as well as Isaiah's passage here that we're looking at. And it speaks of Christ in his humanity as well as he is in his divinity. And we see that his humanity is due to being born of woman, of a virgin becoming pregnant and giving birth to this son. We know that Christ had chromosomes from Mary, 50% from Mary, but also 50% from where? The Holy Spirit that came upon her. So therefore, his divinity is all about his incarnation, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God is with us, that God became man. Now, a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. We read this morning in our scripture reading that Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. So we see that He was born of a woman, He was born of the virgin, and He was under the law. In other words, He was like you and me, that He had to submit to the law. Now, He came to submit to the law to fulfill the law completely for us because we could not fulfill the law. So he was born under the law to keep the law and fulfill the law. And the New Testament writers came to see this. They came to see that all the Old Testament prophecies that were given were true concerning Christ. Their eyes were open to this truth. You know, after Christ had rose from the dead and he was walking on the road to Emmaus, he began to teach them. He began to open up the passage to those that were with him and show them how he was the fulfillment of the scriptures. And of course, what they did, they turned around and taught the other apostles what they had been taught on that road to Emmaus. Now, before the birth of Jesus, many Jews were longing for a Messiah. 
God had been silent. He had been silent for 400 years. So the people were eager to hear from God. They were eager for the Messiah to come. And we see that Luke confirms this as far as the people being eager and the people having some idea, at least some of them had some idea that there was about to be the Messiah to come. We see this in Luke chapter 2. In the reading of the Christmas story. We always read this particular passage every year concerning this. Beginning there in chapter 2, beginning in verse 30 through 32, we see this truth. He says, For the eyes have seen your salvation, which have prepared before the face of the people a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then it goes on and it talks about Simeon. Simeon had been promised that he would see the Messiah. So we see it says, Then Simeon blessed him. This is when Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised by Mary and Joseph. And said, Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. And then we see not only Simeon, but we see also Anna there in verse 36. And a prophetess, the daughter of Penel of the tribe of Asher, she was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow at 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served the Lord with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So we see that two individuals knew by special revelation from God that something was about to happen, that the Messiah was about to come. Now Matthew also includes some information for us there when he talks about um, Herod, and Herod had received the news of the Messiah being born, and he went to his scholars, and he asked them, where is the king of the Jews to be born? For for they had heard the news, and the uh, wise men had asked him this question, and it caused Herod to be, be very concerned and upset. So he asked his scholars, and they in turn came back and they told him. And we see there in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. For they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, And O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means less among the rulers of Judah. For you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And of course they were quoting from Micah 5.2. And speaking of the Messiah, Micah continues and he says, who going forth has been from old and from everlasting, which is translated from days of eternity. Now not only was he Emmanuel, not only was he God with us, but we see that Isaiah predicts that he will He did exist from all eternity. In other words, He was not created as some of the cults tried to teach and some of the false religions, but Jesus Christ has been with the Father, the Trinity, of course, from all eternity. He's no ordinary man. He was both God and man in one person, as we call Him the God-man. 
Now, as we look at this particular verse that I want us to look in it at, and mainly on verse 6, I want us to see the historical importance of this, how glorious it is as far as this prophecy is concerned. And remember about that first advent. And advent, do you know what that means, children? Advent, the word advent simply means coming, the coming of the Messiah. But also think about the second advent. Now first, this famous and unique prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6, has this historical setting, which is very important. To be able to understand this prophecy rightfully, we need to understand the historical setting. Jesus, I mean, David himself had ushered in a golden age. He had transformed this ragged bunch of individuals into a great mighty nation. They had been a confederacy of tribes. And he did a remarkable thing in establishing a nation. Now, during David's reign, he ruled mightily. But then came along his son. And his son was not as faithful as he was. And his reign began to fall apart. And we know that Israel fell into idolatry. And later the kingdom called Israel and Judah the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, divided. Now, the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was carried off into captivity, suffered greatly. They were dispersed. But those who were not carried off, they intermingled with other nations and married other nations, and they became what were called in the New Testament Samaritans. And we know that there was bitter hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews because the Samaritans, like I said, had intermingled with Gentiles. And those Gentiles that they had intermingled with were the Assyrians. Now, of course, Judah, the southern kingdom, continued to exist. And they had experienced that golden age and they desired for the golden age to return again a time of peace and justice and security. And Isaiah stated that this longing would be fulfilled. It would be fulfilled in the Messiah, the Anointed One. There in chapter 7 through 9, this is spoken of. And Isaiah tells King Ahaz that the military threat against Judah would not succeed. He was the king of Judah. He was a wicked king. Uh, In the northern kingdom, in Israel, all the kings were wicked. In the southern kingdom, there was a little bit uh, better situation to where at least eight of the kings were called good kings. But in the northern kingdom, they were all wicked kings. And that's one of the reasons why God allowed the southern kingdom to remain. Now, Ahaz was so wicked and he was so ignorant that he would not listen to Isaiah. He would not believe Isaiah. Even though Isaiah told him that God would give him a sign, he refused to even to seek a sign, ask for a sign. But yet God goes ahead and he gives him a sign, even so there in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that spoke of uh, the Lord himself giving a sign, it says in verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So that was the sign that God gave Isaiah to give to Ahaz. 
even though he rejected it. Now, because he rejected that, God brought judgment upon the nation, judgment upon Judah for rejecting the message of Isaiah. Of course, Ahaz thought he was going to be smart and he thought he'd be able to buy his freedom and he was going to buy his freedom from the Assyrians. But yet God turned around and allowed the Assyrians to be the very ones that brought judgment upon Judah. Now Isaiah tells them that they will not suffer forever. They will not continue to be under the judgment forever that God would send His Son. He would send Him in the midst of this darkness and He would reign and He would bring peace and He would be a son of David who would deliver them. So he would be born a child. He'd be born of a man. He would have humanity as well as deity. And that is revealed, of course, in these names that are spoken of here in chapter 9, verse 6. So this child that would be born in every way was to be respected by all. And he would grow in the likeness of man. He would learn, and we see that, of course, in the Gospels, that he grew in stature. He grew in knowledge, just like we grow in stature, just like we grow in knowledge. Of course, the difference was that he was not a sinner, so therefore he was not hindered by sin as we are. He was not hindered and distracted in his learning. I mean, You know, parents, you often have to tell your children, now do your homework, and they're distracted. They're distracted by the things of this world. Uh, TV and other things, they all want to go out and play and do things. That was not the case with Jesus. When Jesus got ready to study, he was diligent. He was disciplined in his study. He did not have a desire when he was studying to go out and play. He simply stayed there and studied and learned. And that's why he knew so much. And I'd encourage you children to seek to be like Jesus, to study. There is a time for playing. I'm not saying Jesus never played, but there's a time for studying. There's a time for playing. And if you want to grow in knowledge and wisdom, spend time studying. Don't wait till you're forced to study when you go off to seminary. Man, you know what I'm talking about. But we see also that he was begotten of the Father, which reveals his deity. This son will one day have the government on his shoulders. And a good leader understands the responsibility that he has as a good leader. A good leader is to care about his people, a care about their burdens. I wish we had some good leaders today in Washington. It doesn't seem like they care about the average man. They continue to allow things to uh, climb in price. We have inflation. We Gas is getting so high that we can't hardly afford to drive our vehicles anywhere. And it doesn't seem like our leadership in Washington cares very much. I mean, everyone wants a good leader. Everyone wants a leader to care for their people. Well, Jesus was that kind of leader. He cared for his people and he cared for their burdens. And we see in this, these four names, his divinity is spoken of. First of all, He will be a wonderful counselor. Now, I want to come back in just a moment to that word wonderful, um, which speaks of simply, if it's translated um, directly from the Hebrew, it's just simply wonder. And we'll look at that in just a minute ago, minute. But I want to speak first of all of the word counselor, that this child would have great wisdom to be the counselor. Uh, Look at what Isaiah chapter 11 says. 
verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The wisdom, the spirit of the wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge of the fear of the Lord. So we see that Christ would have this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge, and he was the counselor of all counselors. There's no counselor that was better than Christ as counselor. We see that in the gospel. I mean, every time someone tries to trick him or uh, lead him a different direction, he was wise. He was able to give counsel. He was able to withstand the onslaughts that came his way. He was the best counselor ever, if there ever was a counselor. And he reveals the truth of salvation and teaching salvation. He reproved Nicodemus there in John chapter 6. He reproves him for not understanding biblical salvation. And he teaches Nicodemus what biblical salvation was, that you must be born from above. And we see that he continues to do that throughout the gospel. His wisdom far exceeded the man who was the greatest wise man of all, who was what? Who? Solomon. Of course, I think maybe Abraham, I mean, Adam was even, uh, had greater wisdom than Sodom, but we, uh, Solomon, but we see in Scripture that God gave him wisdom far beyond any other man. How do we know that? Well, we see even at the age of 12, he was able to confound the scholars of his day. Jesus said, For this reason I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should be witness to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So we see that Jesus himself gave witness of the truth. He was the great counselor. And throughout his ministry, he spoke the truth. And he revealed it that he himself was the greatest counselor ever. Now, this word wonderful, as I said, translated in the Hebrew, simply wonder. Alistair Begg says, He is wonderful, for he defines wonder in himself. Did you hear that? He is wonderful, for he defines wonder in himself. Now, language today, sadly to say, has been destroyed in many ways. And you know that. We've been dealing with it for years now. Words have been changed. They no longer mean what they used to mean, and they no longer express the truth that they used to express. And, and we've taken a lot of words of the Bible that were very, uh, very good words to express certain meanings to us, and we've made them very common words. One of those words is awesome. I mean, awesome is used all the time. Oh, you got an awesome pair of shoes on. you got an awesome suit. No, your shoes are not awesome. Your suit isn't awesome. I mean, awesome is a word that is to cause us to think how glorious and wonderful something is. And it ain't us, folks, but it is God. God is an awesome being. Christ was an awesome being. And this word wonder is like that word awesome. It had a particular meaning. And as an adjective, it means that which requires an explanation from God. In other words, the wonders of God, the wonders of the Old Testament. And in these wonders of the Old Testament, they point to God as the author of those things. In other words, when we look at the wonder of creation, when you spend 
of the night looking at the universe, looking at the stars and the galaxies. You can't do anything but stand in awe, stand in wonder, stand and say how awesome it is because you see that it points to God. And you look at the different things that happened in the Old Testament when God divided the Red Sea. That is a wonder of God. Or when God brought down the walls of Jericho, that is a wonder of God. And you can look at all of the different events in the Old Testament where God did great and mighty things and you say those are His wonders. So therefore, that is what it's speaking of, that Christ is a wonder of God. Now second, he says, Almighty God. And this refers to His power that he defeats the power of death, hell, and sets captives free. Satan tried, of course, to defeat him. First, we see that he used Herod to try to kill him when Herod made the order for all of those children, two and under, to be put to death, all the males to be put to death. But he did not succeed. And, and throughout his ministry, he tried to succeed. Satan did over Christ. He could not. And of course, he thought he succeeded there at the very end when he put him on the cross. But we know that he did not succeed. But instead, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And we see that he displayed his sovereignty over Satan and over this world, being our mighty God. And He, being our mighty God, is able to satisfy His people with every need, even the void that is in man's heart. As Augustine said, You made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless to us until it finds rest in Thee. So man is a restless individual. And he continues to be a restless individual until what? Augustine tells us. Until we find our rest in thee, when speaking of God and particularly of Christ. When we find our rest in Christ, we sing that hymn, resting, resting. You know the hymn I'm talking about. I'm not going to try to sing it to you. But resting in God, resting in Christ, how wonderful that is. Only Christ is able to satisfy that deepest desire in man's heart. And He brings about full satisfaction to where we know that we are free from our sins. Now, of course, the fullness of that satisfaction will not come until we are released from these mortal bodies that we have here and we have our new bodies and we're with Christ in heaven. Then we will have full satisfaction. As the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. So it's delighting in God when we find the desires of our heart. And because Jesus Christ is the mighty God, He alone is able to satisfy all of our deep cravings. Then He uses the word everlasting Father, translated Father of eternity. In other words, He's not speaking uh, and giving us a doctrine on uh, the Trinity here, but what he's doing, he's given us a comparison that Jesus is like a father. I mean, this child, this one with the father, from everlasting to everlasting, he is the author of everlasting life to those who believe. He is creator and sustainer of the universe. Paul tells us that in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse uh, 
15 through 17. We looked at it a number of weeks ago on Sunday night as uh, Hal preached for us. Beginning there in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or principalities or powers or all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. So we see here Paul giving us a teaching of who Christ is, that He created all things, and He's from everlasting to everlasting. Augustine of Hippo says, Having deigned to send us the Son, let us not imagine that it is something less than the Father that is sent to us. The Father, in sending the Son, sent His other self. I mean, that's a wonderful truth that the Father, in sending the Son, sent Him other self. So the image that tells us that the Son of David will not look out for His own own interest, but like any good father, He will put the needs of His children first and work for their benefit because of His love for His children. See, a godly father is willing to lay down his life to provide and to protect his children. A godly father loves his children. Jesus wept and prayed, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers his chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, a loving father wants to gather his, his children to himself as Jesus did. A loving father is one who knows God and seeks to obey God in all things. And his greatest desire is for his children to know God. Oh, that we as fathers would weep. Weep over our children for them to know God. Many times I've heard fathers say, I want to be a good father. Well, if you want to be a good father... And follow the example of Jesus. Be a godly example to your children. Weep over your children. Live for the Lord. Worship the Lord. Live a godly example before your children. You cannot have a Christian home if you're not a Christian. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, there's those who think they can have a Christian home, but they're not a Christian. How in the world can you do that? You can't. You must first come to your senses. Your eyes must be open to your need of Christ yourself. How can your children see the need of Christ if, they, if you've never seen the need of Christ in your own life? To be able to win them to Christ. May we be godly examples before our children and weep over them as Christ was a godly example for us as our Father. Fourth, 
It doesn't end with his power, but he mentions what? Prince of Peace. Now don't misunderstand this aspect of this nature. For only those who are submissive to Christ, only those who know him are able to experience and participate in this peace. See, many think that they receive his peace, but they've never bowed before him. Only those who have trusted in Him, only those who have received His peace, experience His peace. All others reveal that they are hostile to God. They are in rebellion against God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, beginning there in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What does Jesus say there? Jesus is pointing out that nothing, nothing can come before him. He must be first and foremost in our life. And Jesus settles all our conflict and brings peace to all those whom His favor rests upon, as Luke 2.14 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, and on earth peace to those whom His favor rests. That's the NIV. Matter of fact, the NIV on this particular occasion gives us the best translation. Because it's upon the peace rest upon those whom His favor rests. In other words, those whom His salvation rests, He experiences the peace. Only those who hold to His truth, only those who live for Him, only those who do not compromise have His peace. And as Messiah, He brings peace on earth and will rule His kingdom in righteousness and justice. Second, what impact does this prophecy have on you and me for today and for the future? It reveals the truthfulness, first of all, of Scripture. So we know that we can rely absolutely on the Word of God, that there is an absolute, and that absolute is God's Word. We don't blindly accept God's Word. No, we know that God's Word is truth and we accept it by faith. The psalmist says in 119, 160, Your Word is true from the beginning and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. The psalmist also tells us in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And in Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. 
then it's summed up <coughs> excuse me, by Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given for inspir- by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So the Old Testament is truthful as well as the New Testament. The Old Testament was completed about 450 years before Christ was born. It was written by 28 writers over a 500 period years of time. There are over 300 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament that all find their fulfillment in the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, 29 major prophecies are fulfilled in one day at the death of Christ. Now, many are like Herod scholars. They had had knowledge. They could go and they could look in the Old Testament. They looked there in Micah, and they were able to give Herod the answer that he wanted. But yet, Scripture had no impact whatsoever upon their lives. They remained the same after discovering that the Messiah, Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. They didn't go searching for Him. They weren't like the wise men. They didn't go looking for Him. They continued to stay right where they were. They were satisfied in their darkness. They were unwilling to seek Christ. And there's many like that today who know that Jesus is the reason for Christmas, reason why it's to be celebrated, but it hasn't changed them in any way whatsoever. They continue to do the same things in their life. It's simply a tradition. It's simply an opportunity to indulge the flesh in celebrating and having a enjoyable time. They decorate their houses, which even includes a a manger scene. But they do not truly worship the child in the manger. For Christmas to them is simply about self. And some even sing, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on your troubles will be out of sight. From now on, your troubles will be miles away. And they think their troubles are miles away, but their troubles are not miles away because they've never gone to Christ to have their troubles removed. Do you see how some people are willing to deceive themselves with such songs of our society? Others try to obtain happiness with stuff. They sing, it's beginning to look a lot. Like Christmas, everywhere you go, take a look in the five and ten, listening once again with candy canes and silver lanes aglow. And they don't realize that not only are those songs empty of truth, but yet it's empty of spirituality. I mean, they don't understand that there's a reason that Christ came into this world 
that this baby grew into a man and that this baby lived a perfect life as a young man. And all the years that he lived, he lived for a purpose, living out what God the Father had commanded him to do, obeyed God in every single way, even to where he went to the cross and paid the debt for his people. But people don't grasp that. I mean, do you grasp what Isaiah is really saying? For unto us. I mean, that us is all those who truly believe in the Messiah. Because you believe you have been born from above by this Messiah. That He came to birth you into the kingdom. Those who have embraced Christ by faith have entered into His kingdom. I mean, Jesus is their wonder. He is their counselor. Their lives have been radically transformed by the mighty God. And He settles their conflict and resolves their confusion and satisfies all their craving. And His peace rules in their heart to be able to face no matter what comes their way, they still are able to have peace because they know God is in control. Those who know Him worship Him according to these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As they begin to grasp what each of these names mean, it enhances their worship. Do you know this Jesus? Has your knowledge of Him enhanced your worship? Has your knowledge of Him caused you to be more committed to Him? Or do you, like others, have to be begged and pleaded with to attend worship service? If so, then something's wrong. Something's wrong spiritually. If if there's not a desire to worship this Christ, something's wrong spiritually. If somebody has to stimulate you to come to church, if somebody has to stimulate you to read your Bible, if someone has to stimulate you to pray, then there's something wrong spiritually in your life. If you have more joy being somewhere else today than being here, something is wrong spiritually in your life. Have you, like Isaiah, fallen on your face before this glorious pre-incarnate Christ and worshipped Him according to His names? Do you really know this child who was born unto us? This son given Unto us. Has he truly changed your life or are you simply playing games? Have you experienced his grace and his mercy to where you love him and want to honor him? God has given his word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that you might know Him. Do you know Him? Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher 
in London in the 1800s. How is it that the Lord Jesus becomes glorious in our eyes? And he whose name is Emmanuel is now crowned in our heart with many crowns and honored with many titles. What a list of glories we have here. What a burst of song it makes when we sing of the Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Each word sounds like an artillery. It is all very well to hear players on instruments and sweet singers rehearse these words, but to believe them and realize them in our soul is far better when every fear and every hope and every power and every passion of our nature fills the orchestra of our heart and all unite in one inward song unto the glorious Emmanuel, what music it is. The moment you really believe in Jesus, your salvation, so that you fall before Him and call Him Master and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to be our Savior. Father, I pray that those that do not know him savingly, that today would be the day of salvation that today they would have understanding of who Christ is as wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. May it be so, Father. May Your Spirit open eyes and unstop ears so that men and women and children turn from their sins and look to Christ so that their sins may be forgiven and that they may experience the grace of the only begotten Son. What wonderful opportunity Christ has made for man so that they may know Him and know of His salvation. And may we who are Christians, Father, may we demonstrate our love for Him by worshiping Him rightly, by longing for His second coming by living godly lives before other men, by demonstrating our love for Him, by obeying Him in all things. Do not allow us, Father, to go astray, to forsake the truth, but keep us close to You. Discipline us so that we heed Your voice, so that we run to Your arms that are open and welcome us and forgive us. And Father, we are reminded as we come this morning to the table as 
we have been told to remember. Remember these things that we have talked about this morning. Remember who Christ is and what He has accomplished for us. May our hearts this morning, Father, worship You as we remember, as we come to the table to take of the bread and to take of the fruit of the vine, Father, may we remember our Lord and Savior who was born of the Virgin, who lived a perfect life and died for our sins. May we remember Him. May we prepare our hearts for this time, Father. Search our hearts as we pray silently.